2: Hello, and welcome to New Books in History. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today I'm speaking to Andrew Pedigree and Arthur Dervedeven, author of The Bookshop of the World, Making and Trading Books in the Dutch Golden Age, published in 2019 by Yale University Press. Andrew Pedigree is Professor of Modern History at the University of St. Andrews and Director of the Universal Short Title Catalog. Welcome, Andrew.
1: Uh, good afternoon, and very happy to be
2: here. I'm so glad you're here. And, and Arthur Dervedevan is a British Academy postdoctoral research fellow at the University of St. Andrews and deputy director of the Universal Short Title Catalog. Welcome, Arthur.
0: Hi, Ryan, and uh, delighted to be here. Thank you.
2: Well, uh, Andrew and Arthur, congratulations on this wonderful new book. Welcome to the show. I'm very excited
1: to get into this with you. But
2: first, I'd love to hear just a little bit about yourselves. So Andrew, can
1: we start with you? Well, yes, I've been now at the University of uh, St. Andrews for a long time. I did my uh, education in, in Oxford and then spent two years in Hamburg and then two years in Cambridge before I came up here and have been here ever since. I'd say my career uh, falls into two neat halves. I started life as a Reformation historian, and then uh, in in mid-career, which corresponded pretty much to the birth of my children, uh, not coincidentally, I switched focus to the history of communication. And that's generated several books, uh, Reformation and the Culture of Persuasion, Book in the Renaissance, Uh, The Invention of News, which is just about to come out in Russian, I understand, Mm -hmm. and then Brand Luther on print and the making of the Reformation. And that was an opportunity, if you like, to bring the two halves of my academic life back together. Um, I've accumulated over the time quite a lot of uh, graduate students. And uh, about 10 years ago, Arthur uh hove interview making it clear that he was shopping for someone to work with um and one thing i have got uh, quite good at is i know when when a rare and unusual talent uh, comes my direction so not only was i keen to recruit him but it turned out that we would write books together
2: hmm. well arthur can you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself yeah, of course. Thanks,
0: Ryan. Uh, well, I was um, I was born and raised in in Amsterdam, but I've been in the in the UK now for um, uh, for pretty much ten years. I did my uh, my undergraduate studies at the University of Exeter, uh, and thanks to one of my uh, tutors at Exeter, I was I was able to join uh, Andrew here in St Andrews in twenty thirteen as a, uh, a volunteer uh, working with the Universal Short Title Catalog during um, uh, one of one of their summer programs. And, uh, and since, then, since then, I've stayed here, to be honest, I did my, my uh, Mlet in book history here here in St. Andrews, and after that, uh, a PhD under uh, Andrews' supervision. And after that, I've been able to, uh, to stay here as a uh, postdoctoral uh, a fellow. So, um, you know, love being in St. Andrews, and I love the sort of um, work that I'm able to do here. And, and really, a lot of the, uh, the focus of our research here is, is as, as broad as possible, uh, media and communications history and often focusing specifically on the the print heritage and the print culture of early modern Europe. So my first first, uh, research work was on uh, reconstructing the the early history of newspaper publishing in the Low Countries, Mm. uh, which resulted in a a two-volume bibliography published in 2017. And doing this work on newspapers, um, then also spiraled into a study of newspaper advertising, which Andrew and I took on together. And as we were working through these, these many uh, newspaper advertisements, uh, we saw how many of them were for the publication of, of Dutch books. And really, this was one of the angles in which we decided together to say, you know what, let's do something about um, Dutch book culture in this wonderful period, the Dutch Golden Age, long 17th century, um, as a study. So, um, yeah, that's, that's us here now today, I think.
2: Well, it's so fascinating. And those interests certainly all uh, culminate into this excellent project by Yale University Press, the bookshop of the world. Now, I I wonder to get into this, uh, the book a little, um, maybe to give us some context. Uh, What is the Dutch Golden Age um, that this book covers? And and why study the book trade during this period in, in Dutch history?
1: well i I'd, I'd come to this partly because i'd already done a little bit of work on, on, on the dutch revolt uh, earlier in my career and so i left uh, the the netherlands as a, a at the end of the 16th century as a, as really a shattered wreck of a country struggling to survive in an a, in an eternal war against uh, europe's greatest military power spain yet within 50 years by the m- middle of the 17th century not uh, Even before they'd made peace with Spain, the Dutch had become a world power and were well on their way to dominating the European uh, trade. And they were certainly already by this point the center of the European book trade. Mm-hmm. Now, that was really a huge deal. You have to understand that since the invention of printing in the middle of the 15th century, the shape of the book world had been pretty fixed. There were three superpowers, uh, Germany, uh, France, and Italy, and the rest was just a a supporting periphery. So that a tiny country uh, with very few natural resources uh, and no king could suddenly take first place in this European book world was a phenomenon that seemed to me in need of investigation. Mm -hmm. And of course, with the universal short title catalogue, this catalogue of all the books printed in the first age of print that we created in St Andrews, we had a lot of the raw materials to do this. Uh, and it turned out, it, it's a fascinating story. Um, it really, the Dutch succeeded because they had a new formula. They did produce some really beautiful books, but that wasn't the, the key to their success. The key to their success was to print lots of cheap books, sell them at small margins to a big audience. And that's the domestic market. And and Arthur can tell you something more about that. And although they sold a lot of books around the continent, by and large, they were buying them cheap from the old giants, France, Germany, and Italy, and selling them on. It was a re-export market rather than an export market. And this hasn't been at all well understood, partly because it's been so difficult really to establish what was printed in the Netherlands, because so much of what was key to the market had over the course of the years been lost.
0: And really, to, if, I, if I may add on to this, really, you know, one of the, the key parts of this, of why this story has never before been told in this fashion, um, is also that the, the fascination of scholars with the Dutch Golden Age, this period in which really the Netherlands is, is punching above its weight, as you can say. You know, this right. is a country of fewer than two million people in this period, but politically, economically, on the global stage, the Dutch seem to be everywhere in this period. But so far, scholars um, have largely been fascinated by uh, the expression of Dutch art, of its great paintings, as the as the symbol of this dutch ascendancy and you know this is true you go to museums about the dutch 17th century and there's some wonderful pieces you can see but um, you know the dutch produced many of these paintings but these were not um, really you know we value these paintings more today than they were valued by the european market as a whole in the 17th century often the, the parochial nature of dutch painting. Um, you know, didn't find many buyers in, you know, the courts of England or, or France. Mm. And the book story is totally different, where in fact, you know, the, the Dutch may have produced over 300 million books in the 17th century. That is, if you compare that to the art market, we know that scholars have estimated the Dutch may have produced 3 million paintings. So, you know, a hundred times as many. And this was a product that was of, of immense interest and value. To collectors, uh, to booksellers all over Europe. So that is, that is one of the things that that's fascinated about investigating this story. But, you know, how did, why did the Dutch, how were they able to produce 300 million uh, printed books? And like Andrew just said, able to in- import many more books from other markets. Well, one of the key factors in that is the is the incredible high literacy rates of Dutch people in this period. In Dutch towns like Amsterdam or Leiden, uh, some of the great publishing centers of this period, up to about 60% of the inhabitants will have been able to read. Uh, And crucially, um, about 40% of women as well. And this is extremely unusual um, in in this period, where literacy rates will have been much, much lower, about 10, 15, 20% in most other territories. So the Dutch had had this incredible domestic market they could tap into. Um, And this was a market that was divided, um, as our research has shown, amongst several key genres. Uh, One of the most important ones, often neglected today in a more secularized age, is religion and religious printing. Uh, For all the variety of confessional denominations and sects that made the Dutch Republic their home, all strands of Protestantism, but also crucially, a very large minority of Catholics who, although they were... Um, the, the, the effects of the Dutch Revolt, in effect, made them second-class citizens. They were still able to partake in this flourishing of the Dutch book trade. Then we have other markets, um, schooling and education. Uh, the, the, the pedagogical system in the Netherlands was uh, in, in, incredibly advanced in this stage as well, with free schooling available across the entire country. But also, uh, and this is something the Dutch really got into, is is printing for institutions. You know, we tend to think of of the the book world, the book market working as a commercial trade, as in a publisher has an idea, publishes a book and hopes to find lots of different buyers. But much of the print trade was dominated by institutional clients like governments or uh, churches or universities being loyal, stable customers and actually supplying most of the money for many of these publishing projects. And that included uh, orders for uh, proclamations, for the publication of new laws, for the publication um, of other other sorts of regulations, of um, newly updated school books, academic dissertations, you name it. This is what supplied uh, Dutch printers with so much of the capital needed by which they could then expand into the European book market.
2: Uh, so interesting. And, and as the Dutch really started to transform the, the economics and the market of Dutch printing, you, you highlight a couple of key families and, and figures who really innovated um, the, the economics of, of bookmaking. So so could you talk a little bit about the, is it the El Selvier and the Blau and, and um, Cornelius classes? And, and what was their role in transforming um, this market?
0: Yeah, because certainly uh, talk about those some some fantastic uh, uh, names there and, and 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 all these families you've just mentioned also highlight something very important about the dutch book trade and and that is the difference between um the the actual reality on the ground and reputation and image and this is something that you know the Elseviers are all about uh, the Elseviers were a, a family of printers that started in leiden and were later active in 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 lots of other dutch cities as well and it started with this sort of down down on his luck bookseller, uh, exiled from the southern Netherlands who sets up shop and starts supplying books to Leiden's uh, professors, newly established universities. Good captive market. And the also started to develop this publishing program and they like to present themselves as the, the greatest scholarly publishers of the age. They're very famous uh, for publishing Galileo, for example, and they were later also able to publish uh, René Descartes. And this is what their fame... Um, rested on, together with, uh, with producing very small, elegant and uh, new typefaces, which they were able to use to produce these sort of collectible series of topographical descriptions of all the countries of the world, which they called their, their Republica series. Now, you know, if you were a fashionable gentleman in the 17th century, you had to have your little travelling coffer with your 41 volumes of the Elsevier Republics. You know, that is what defines you as an, as an elegant uh, individual. But the Elzeviers actually made much of their money ripping off local students for the printing of their academic dissertations. (laughs) Now, if you were a student at Leiden, and this was a a fashionable institution at the time, so very, very popular, in order to to, to get anywhere, you would have to defend these disputations. In order to defend them, you would have to get them printed. Well, who had the exclusive privilege to have them printed? You guess what? The Elzeviers. And you know this is uh, something again which has escaped a lot of attention because you know while the Elsevier republics survive all over the world today, you can go to so many great libraries and find these sets, the little dissertations they publish, tens of thousands of them. You know they tend to survive in only a single copy, often not even in the Netherlands, but in a foreign collection in a foreign library where the foreign student who defended this dissertation. Uh, went home and took it with them. So that's where you find those in Sweden or Germany or Hungary, but no longer in the Netherlands. So, you know, the Elseviers like to project this one image, but the reality on the ground is very, very different.
1: Just to add a couple of, of, of points to that, I mean, Arthur makes an important point about the Elseviers, but we also have to remember that only one name can go on the title page of the book. And that's normally the head of the family. But all printing in the Netherlands was a family business. Mm. And what is remarkable about the Netherlands of these days is the uh, in, in empowerment of active women in the book trade. Uh, women who were office the, uh, often the office manager. Um, they uh, mm-hmm. educated their daughters to take over positions in the print shop. And often uh, when they became widows, the um, uh, mother of the house inherited the work and continued uh, and continued working and in one case became the official printer of to the state general. So had access to all this incredibly lucrative work, turning out the uh, ordinances and proclamations for the state. Now, one of the lessons we learned very early in this work is that the reason this, is, this had all been missed is because people were looking for in, information in the wrong places. The tendency is to create a national bibliography by getting all the main libraries in the country, whether it's mm. Italy or Germany or the Dutch or the Netherlands, to uh, audit their collections, and then he, these are all brought together, and that becomes a national bibliography. And I have to say, in the case of the, the, the Dutch national bibliography, work of extremely high quality. Uh, which we've made a lot of use of. But a lot of print doesn't end up in uh, in libraries in the country. They're either spread around the world or they end up in archives because so much of the work that they're doing for their domestic clients is these sort of mundane... Um, Ordinances. Well, that might seem like pretty simple work, but it's the lifeblood of many printers, particularly outside the main centres of of Amsterdam and Leiden. And we discovered over a hundred different institutions and local authorities, which at some time or other uh, had printed work done for them on the presses. Now, that is an enormously wide clientele. And the combination of these institutional customers plus the universities kept print going in many places where it would otherwise have been totally unviable.
0: And if I may add, uh, add to that point of Andrew's about all this um, administrative print that we find in the archives, you know, you may think, well, this is just, um, uh, you know, mon- mundane stuff, uh, announcements on the uh, change in the price of, um, of, of grain or the, 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 the beer excise has changed again. You know, And it is, it's, it's simple uh, stuff, but it's actually, it's, it makes a very important point about how print infiltrates the daily life of Dutch citizens in this period. Because even if you were not a book collector, even if you didn't have a university education or become a minister or a lawyer, you know, if you were walking through a Dutch town this period, the town would be plastered with posters, uh, with, with placards, with little forms and handbills. Uh, would discuss these laws that would also have things like uh, announcements of forthcoming sales or auctions you could go to you know this was this was the sort of material that actually governed people's lives if if you were a, a, a dealer in in cattle or if you sold chickens in the local market and the magistrates of Haarlem or Utrecht had changed the chicken selling law again and you didn't know about this you know this was serious this was serious stuff this could ruin your livelihood so and, and that is another way in which um, you know, we shouldn't just think of the book world and, and, and print in this uh, commercial fashion of just buying and selling. A lot of the printed matter of the Dutch Republic was distributed for free, and it was available to everyone.
2: Yeah, I think the, you made the comment in the book that what, uh, only half of Dutch printed material was intended for retail sale, which just
1: less, less than a quarter, I think, less wow. than a quarter. Yeah, um, it's just fascinating. Yeah, some of it was distributed by subscription, like newspapers, but well over half was given, a, a given away for free.
2: Amazing. Well, it, during the early part of the century, there's this tangled web of, of religion, politics, economics, that um, these controversies, uh, like the, the Remonstrance in the Senate of Dort, for one example, they, they really ignite the print economy and and one of the things that i was struck by reading this book is is that there's this unique combination of the dutch republic's kind of demographic pluralism mm-hmm. um but also uh, this kind of mercantilism you know economic capitalist kind of mercenary attitude that really kind of worked together to really fuel this industry is there is there more that you could kind of shed light on to some of the the way that controversy fueled um, economics of printing.
1: Well, well, controversy generated a lot, lot of of work for for the printers. But I would say it was intermittent work. It, it booms during the time of the remonstrant controversy and the in the synod of Dort. But the bread and butter of uh, religious printing is actually uncontroversial works which have a sort of cross-confessional appeal, editions of the New Testament, uh, catechisms, devotional works, um, works for the piety of the family. And these depended on repeat editions, often editions used so intensively by their owners that we'll find a work which says, this is the 10th edition of such a work, I and mean, we can't find copies of any of the first nine because they've literally been been used to death. And families would have many copies of a New Testament or or or, or a, a church book, some very uh, very ornately bound for carrying with them to church. Um, so you were really dependent on selling you know many copies of similar books to the same families, and then a new family unit would be created, and they would buy. Their, their own books. So it, it, it's these staple markets which I think are, are the most important. And the controversies, uh, when they are found, seem actually to be most, uh, most pungent within, within faiths. Um, one of the uh, important pieces of work that we've, we've been able to see done is one of, one, one of our students mm-hmm. is working on the provision of uh, literature for, for Catholics in the dutch republic fascinating and groundbreaking work um, but what she's found is that in terms of censorship um, these catholic works had more to fear from their own catholic authorities wow. than they did from the protestants so you know it's it's a very tortured and, and mixed up religious uh environment but that of course creates plenty of space for printing
0: no, and it, it should be said, too, that, you know, the D- Dutch Republic is often seen as this, as this highly tolerant society for its time. But um, I would say that it's more out of necessity than anything. And it's more about condoning than an actively celebrating diversity. You know, and, and, and but, but the reason is, is that because, as you as you say, Ryan, this is such a pluralistic society, uh, the regions, the authorities you know often they can do very little about what offends them. Uh, you know, there's so many cases in which the reformed uh, ministers of the church of the synods, um, you know, knock on the door of the, the pensionary in in the Hague and say, "Have you seen this latest uh, Sassanian tract? Uh, you know, which denies the validity of the of the Holy Trinity? You must do something about it." And it's this is wonderful like, exchange at one point at the end of the century by uh, uh, Gaspar or the Grand Pensionary, where he says, "You know, I understand that you're upset, um, but we often find that if you just let these things." lie and if you don't bother and you don't make a fuss about it they eventually die down and you know there will be less trouble that way and that is that's is exactly what's happening because like andrew says you know the, the printers and publishers are catering for very specific markets and specific audiences. they are not necessarily they're only interested in generating controversy if they can make money out of it um and even then you know they exploit the situation and to go back to these Sicilians um, who, who really made the Dutch Republic their home in the second half of the 17th century, the Dutch publishers knew that these Sicilian uh, authors had nowhere else to go. So when they came to say, Will you publish our, our great theological um, works and manifestations? They said, Oh yeah, sure, but it will cost you. You know, <laughs> so they were also able to play this on both sides. And of course they use you know witty false imprints to hide their identities. But in most of these cases, people knew who was behind it. And it was only in the case of, um, you know, the works of Spinoza, for example, which were so, you know, everyone, everyone hated them. (laughs) Uh, There there wasn't a a safe market for those. So only then do you see printers really trying to hide their identity. But there were multiple layers of trying to disguise yourself in this way. They were all very familiar.
1: Yeah. One of the, the best sources for some of this material was the, was the auction catalogues, and we really made an awful lot of use of those. Um, book auctioning was really uh, very largely an invention of the Dutch, certainly in terms of you having a printed catalogue for each of the auctions. And we made a pretty, a pretty uh, full survey of them, and we, we reckon there was something like 4,000 auctions held during the 17th century. And it was a win-win for everybody. The booksellers got money by taking a a fee for selling the books. Um, This was a cash market, whereas most of the book market is uh, a a credit and debt market, which meant that the families of the the deceased were able to receive a substantial sum. It's also the case that books held their value well. So a, a, a lawyer or a minister or a doctor could collect books, securing the knowledge that he would have use for the books, but then his family would have a decent son to live in after. So it was a, it was a form of a, a pension planning, if you like. So we took all this data, and I think we transcribed the best part of um, half a million items from it, and then compared all this data with the data we have of surviving books. And so this is where we got a lot of these lost books from that uh, are so fascinating to us. And it was able to show us the sort of books which no longer survive in libraries. Because in a perverse sort of way, the survival in libraries is almost an inverse indicator of contemporary importance. That books often survive because they aren't much used. They snooze away on their shelves for four centuries. And often if you, we did a lot of this where you go into the library, you find that you feel like you're the first person to open this book (laughs) for 200 years. But the ones which are heavily used, of course, don't live to tell the tale. And so we had to try and uh, understand that relationship. The other fun thing um, about these auction catalogs, and they come back to the um, the, the commercial aspect of this and Arthur's done a good deal of work on this is that these prohibitive books were often auction, sold in a separate category in the auction catalogs, Libri prohibiting, so yeah. advertising their presence so there wasn't that much subterfuge
2: There's a, there's a central character who kind of serves as a, as, a, um, as a structural device in the story that you tell and, and that's the famous painter Rembrandt um, I'm curious, how did his, you know, his artistic genius uh, serve in in some ways as a foil to the Dutch printing industry? Uh, So, you know, you talk about how the market for paintings compared with, say, the market for for wood prints and engravings is quite different in, in, in some of um, Rembrandt's own economics seem to play that out. But What does that tell us more broadly about the uh, the Dutch golden age of printing?
1: Well, Ryan, I'll confess this for the first time ever on air. So you've got a real scoop here. <laughs> the idea was that the book should be called trading books in the age of Rembrandt. Uh-huh. So that's why you've got Rembrandt at the beginning and Rembrandt at the end. And then they canned Rembrandt. Uh, <laughs> are the, are the, well, there are two good grounds for this. One is it was a Rembrandt anniversary, and it yeah. would risk being reviewed as just one of a large group of, of art books. Um, but the other rather unworthy one was that they weren't sure that, you know, everyone would understand the importance of the name. So one way or another, Rembrandt got, uh, got they canned, but not until the book had been written. It's a bit of a pity because actually he does, um, he does form quite an important part of the story in the sense that his tortured relationship with um, all the different faiths and the importance of patronage and who wins the el- elections and whether you have to repay your do- debts or not. Um, Rembrandt is axiomatic for that story. But he also plays an important part because he has such a small library and you wonder how it can possibly be. Um, But also because we found this wonderful example of the announcement of the um, auction of uh, uh, of his possessions after he'd become bankrupt. A very good example of a single surviving copy of a really important piece of print. And in this, in his lifetime, this would just have reinforced his humiliation. Anywhere he went to have a quiet drink, to drown his sor- sorrows, there would be a picture. Of, there would be this poster with all his uh, goods to be auctioned sitting there. There was no escaping for it. And well, it was just seemed to be such a good symbol of this very complicated world we were studying.
2: Yeah. International copyright wasn't something that was very easily enforced in, in the 17th century. Um, in, in, in the, in the latter part of the century, the mid to the lat, the late part of the century, Dutch printers are, are something of a thorn in the, the side of the English printing market and, and other European markets. Um, what, what was going on there that really, um, agitated some of their competitors?
0: Well, I, I would say the key to understanding that is is to see that, you know, the Dutch treated the trade in books like they treated to the trade in, in, in anything and everything. Um, you know, it might as well have been spices or, or whale blubber. Uh, and, and, you know, I, and this is not just uh, uh, an analogy. We know that many of the people who were exporting books from the Netherlands silver markets were merchants who traded in all sorts. You know, we have we have evidence of merchants exporting books to Poland, for example, and in return they get grain. Or they would uh, have timber, so they have a very pragmatic approach to all of this. But what it also boils down to is, is something Andrew mentioned earlier: is that the Dutch were always on the lookout for um, invading local markets, uh, taking on the the established traders there, undercutting their prices and business with very very tight margins because they were able to ship and transport in bulk, driving them out of business, and then having you know uh, the realm to themselves. Uh, really, you know, in, in, in certain ways, they are a sort of 17th century progenitor of, of Amazon in, in certain respects of uh, certain uh, business practices. So, you know, the Dutch, the Dutch riled people up. Uh, they did so in, in England by um, exporting uh, English language Bibles to them, um, or, uh, you know, publishing um, a, French, a French edition of Moliere and trying to sell them back in France. But I have to be honest that, that probably the, the extent of the Dutch infiltration in England and France has been overstated, probably because you know the French and English complained so loudly about it, and because they were so worried also about the, the general unorthodox influences of the Dutch. Where the Dutch were far more successful, and what, you, what uh, most people don't know about, is how they totally conquered and dominated the trade in books in Scandinavia and the Baltic, which had a much uh, less... Developed uh, book book industry, both local printing and book selling, that they were basically able to show up in Copenhagen and Stockholm. Say, we know you only have a couple of bookshops running. Why don't we set you up with a branch? And you know, I will offer you these four thousand titles from uh, my emporium in Amsterdam and have your pick. And you know, the nobility and the scholarly elite of Denmark and Sweden loved this, and they invited Dutch over. They set up branch offices everywhere. and the beauty of it is, is that the Dutch didn't even piss off the local traders that much because they largely stayed clear of printing, say, works in Danish or works in Swedish. They left that to the locals, but they said, you know, if you want anything good, new French books, the books from the Italian market, uh, we've got it for you, and
1: we'll import it for you at good prices. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that. I think that's right. I think they would have seen in retrospect that the a confident Uh, assault on the Paris uh, market in the 1640s was a mistake and a mistake they learned from because the uh, Paris booksellers were extremely powerful and adept at uh, erecting protectionist barriers with the help of the crown. So that was probably a mistake. Um, And what they did in Scandinavia was much more sensible because they left the underdeveloped local market with um, the vernacular market, as Arthur said, and were therefore welcomed by the elites who wanted to build international standard collections in which they were, with the Dutch help, extremely uh, uh, successful. And I should say, Ryan, uh, as far as international copyright is concerned, uh, the Americans still weren't observing it in the age of Charles Dickens. So... Um, that was 200 years later.
2: That's right. Well, speaking of invasions, the, the book closes with William Orange's invasion of England in 1688, 89, the, the so called Glorious Revolution, this showcase of Dutch economic power. But beyond the, the weapons of, of cannons and, and gunpowder, uh, there was another secret weapon in William's fleet that you, you draw attention to that was uh, 50,000 copies. Of a secretly produced mass-printed text. So, what's the story behind this mystery mass publication, and how does the how does the story of the golden age of Dutch printing fade into uh, into the 18th and 19th century?
0: Uh, thanks, thanks for bringing that up, Ryan. It, it's truly a, a, a wonderful story, and that's why we chose to to, to end the book um, with it. And this is a story, indeed, of the Glorious Revolution, or as we like to call it, the Dutch Conquest of England. Um, where you have, you have William, William III, uh, who comes to, um, to invade, to dethrone his, uh, um, his uncle and father-in-law, James uh, James II of England. Um, and the, this, this secretly printed tract you speak of was his declaration uh, in English, in which he justifies his whole venture. And this is in part why it's known as a Glorious Revolution, because instead of William saying, I have come to, to conquer you, my new subjects, he said, oh, no, no, I'm not here to invade. I've been invited over by the, the, good, uh, the good nobles and, and bishops of England, and I've come to save you. I've come to liberate you. So there's a beautiful piece of, of, of rhetoric. Uh, that was uh, dispatched all over England. It was also smuggled in in boats before the invasion, so it could be, you know, published as soon as news of William's landing was made. It was read out at market squares uh, and really brandished as the symbol of the entire invasion that ensured that William was indeed successful in this whole venture. And when it came to his his coronation the next year in 1689, together with his his wife Mary, this was later held up by the House of Commons uh, to say, you know, we have your declaration, William. We know what you promised, and you promised that actually Parliament would reign supreme rather than uh, the king and queen. So it's also, you know, it's we like this because it's a relatively humble publication. It's just a small pamphlet like the Dutch, like so many of the other pamphlets the Dutch publish, but it's also a document with profound implications for the future of uh, British and ultimately also Western democracy. A document that is later also held up by uh, the founding fathers uh, in, in America.
1: It's also very important because it sort of makes our point that small works are not to be I- I- ignored. I mean the French have a wonderful French word for this, they're often described as non livres, that is not books, and th- uh, there have been bibliographies which say anything shorter than 40, um, 40 pages is not included here. Well. You know, a lot of the mightiest writing, if you think of uh, Luther's 95 Theses, are actually very short and succinct and often the most impactful. And that's also a story we tell. As for the end of the Dutch Golden Age, um, that's very contested, but it certainly doesn't end as far as printing is concerned. We simply don't see any real diminution. In the quality or the impact or the size of the Dutch market. In fact, the new connection with, with England rather helps there because the, two, the the auction market spreads from the Netherlands to, to Britain. Um, and towards the end of the 18th century, um, Amsterdam is still the world centre of the paper market, another great success of Dutch industry that they build themselves an uh, indigenous business. So um, in a way, we can count ourselves out of, about the, of the debate about the decline of the Dutch Golden Age, because I would say it really doesn't occur until the French Revolution in terms of printing.
2: Well, you've both been so generous with your time to come and talk about this excellent book. I, I knew I would feel this way uh, by this point in the interview that we've just left so many of my favorite stories um, from the book um, out. So, you know, I encourage our listeners to go get themselves a copy, and you can find out more about the Great Atlas and the um, the birth of university presses and the Dutch Republic and and what happened to the town crier. So so there's still so much that we haven't covered. But now that you've wrapped up your work on the bookshop of the world, what's next on the horizon for for both of you?
1: Well, there's there's one more um, there's one more common venture which is uh, just uh, going through production now and will be published in October. Uh, and that's a book on the history of book collecting from the ancient library of Alexandria to Google. So it covers a bit of a range and it's called The Library of Fragile History. Um, and it makes the point in the title that these cycles of creation and dissipation and destruction and regathering are not a crisis of the digital age, which we're living through today, but a a continuous cycle of building and loss. And really, the the main message is that no no, um, generation really wants to be stuck with the taste of its uh, fathers and grandfathers.
0: Yes, yeah, so and this is something that's in some in, in in a part also inspired by this work on on the bookshop of the world on the Netherlands because we we saw in our in the in a course of research this so many beautiful libraries being being assembled by professors by statesmen by doctors but yet all of them you know most dispersed broken up sold on by the heirs and that really you know makes this point about the that the dispersal and the fragility of book collections is actual a, a natural. Uh, and often a good part too, because people make a new. Because that is, you know, libraries ultimately will die if, if people are no longer interested in in the books that that are in them. So uh, you know, that's a, that's a, a fundamental part of the story. And the other one is the importance of personal collections, of private collecting. You know, the his, history of libraries um, is uh, has been written many times, but it tends to be written from the perspective of great institutions. You know, the 10 libraries you must see before you die with beautiful pictures and they are they're wonderful, wonderful places. But, you know, those are the outliers. Those are the, 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 the rarities that have somehow survived. And very often, of course, um, not survived in one um, sort of straight line. But there's a there's a, a real discrepancy between the building you often see and, and the actual books that are kept inside. And so exploring those paradoxes and ironies in library history is really the point of, of the library of fragile history.
1: Hmm. And Ryan, if you can, if you can contain yourself, once you've enjoyed that, if you as long as you're prepared to wait a couple of years, you can have a a brilliant book from Arthur on the Dutch invasion of England, Uh which he's currently working on. So you'll have the full story.
2: Well, I I can't wait. In fact, um, (laughs) This is the first time I've ever been able to announce um, to our listeners that I'm so excited about this next book on, on the library, A Fragile History, that we've already booked you for uh, <laughs> for an interview. So, so whatever podcast or, or app or, or website that you're using to listen to this episode, just go ahead and subscribe, and then uh, just come back and. and- Um, We'll have Andrew and Arthur back to talk about that project um, in a few months, I hope. So this has been a conversation with Andrew Pedigree and Arthur Dervedevin, authors of The Bookshop of the World, Making and Trading Books in the Dutch Golden Age. You can go get your copy now from Yale University Press. Arthur and Andrew, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure.
0: Pleasure, Ryan. Thank you.
2: And thanks to our listeners for tuning into this episode of the New Books Network. You can visit newbooksnetwork.com where you can browse our catalog of over 10,000 author interviews in whatever discipline your heart desires. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Share it with a friend. And that's it for now. I hope you have a great day.